Hello and welcome to Palestine Deep Dive. In fact, welcome to this, which is our 77th show. Uh, and we're live today with Andrew Whitley. Uh, Andrew's a very old friend of mine, and he's also the former United Nations Relief and Works Agency New York director. Um, and we're going to learn more about the financial crisis, which is currently facing UNRWA, uh, and what this might mean for Palestinians, but also what it might mean for the rest of the world. Um, just to give you some background, and before I introduce uh, Andrew properly, um, of course, most of you will know about UNRWA, but for those who don't, um, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency was established in 1949 by the UN General Assembly to help and protect Palestinian refugees expelled during the Nakba in 1947-1948. And today it is in dire financial crisis. Uh, Adnan Abu Hasna, uh, he, uh, who's a, the UNRWA representative in Ghana, uh, in Gaza, I beg your pardon, said recently, the financial crisis facing UNRWA is deep and complex. It has been suffering from these issues for many years, but this year is the most dangerous. UNRWA will have no funds to serve Palestinian refugees after August. So we're barely a month away from no funds for Palestinians. Over 6 million of them, of course, registered as refugees with the agency. They rely on UNRWA for essential services, including education, food, healthcare, and jobs. And Abu Hasna has also warned that all UNRWA services will be stopped by the beginning of September if they do not get the necessary funds. And actually, if you look at much of the media, there's barely any recognition, it seems, of the crisis that, that is about to hit uh, the Palestinians. Uh, and doubtless, uh, there will be a lot of interest when it does. But one of the reasons why we're speaking to Andrew today is really to get ahead of all of this and to alert people and to alert those who make the decisions and people who will report on them uh, and to begin to really focus and laser in on what this could all mean not only for Palestinians for the right, but for the wider region. Now, this, these uh, cessation of services will apply to all UNRWA programs, not only in Gaza, but in all of the areas that uh, UNRWA works, including the West Bank, as well as refugee camps in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon. Um, now, just briefly, uh, half a million students in schools are dependent on UNRWA services. Uh, food is provided to nearly 1.2 million Palestinian refugees. Um, now, uh, 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 it's also been said in a place like Gaza, any shaking of the, of the UNRWA programs or activities or services will threaten the stability, even the social fabric, as refugees are dependent on cash assistance program on education and health. Uh, UNRWA, of course, runs 22 medical centers. 278 schools in Gaza, alongside several programs in human rights education, university scholarships, vocational training, and teacher training. It is, in many respects, the state within the state. Um, Andrew is, of course, founder and executive director of Geopolitical Advisory Services and chair of the Balfour Project. And he's had an extensive career, first as a journalist for the BBC and Financial Times, before serving as the New York director of UNRWA, and then as policy director and interim chief executive of the elders. And Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. And I should say that we first met uh, many years ago uh, uh, at the UN when I went over there to 
work um, at New in New York as an Al Jazeera correspondent. You were there at UNRWA, and that has sparked my interest in the organization. Uh, and you're here today. We're grateful for your time. And I just want um, we've given an overview, but you know, you have been at the coalface. Um, you know how important uh, it is. It really is. I mean, can, can you just give us, uh, just explain to us, you know, how UNRWA fits in to the life of Palestinians in historic Palestine and outside? Mark, you gave a very good introduction to UNRWA and accurately described the scale of its programs and what it does. I think perhaps we need to zoom back a little bit and to be able to look at the significance of UNRWA, because it deals with the refugees from the 1948 conflict, but also from the 1967 conflict. And it has become a fixture in the region. Everywhere that you go traveling around the Middle East and you see a, a blue UN flag flying over a building, 95% of the time, it's an UNRWA facility. It is, as you accurately said, delivering state services. Unlike any other UN agency in the world, it is acting as if it is a state, providing the services that would normally be provided by a state inside the occupied territories, but also in the region elsewhere. So it's very much a fixture of the region. And right from the start, its earliest days, it's had financial crises. It's not for nothing that it's known in that journalistic cliche, the cash-strapped UN agency. <laughs> Viewers will say, oh, haven't we seen this before? Isn't this just the boy crying wolf once again? Well, no, it isn't actually, because there is a structural problem. The number of registered refugees continues to rise inexorably. And at the same time, the funding is increasingly unreliable and, un and, uh, and, and uh, not keeping pace with the, with the needs of, of, of the refugees. So something has to give here. And we're in a situation at the moment in which there is no agreement between the refugee host countries, which includes the Palestinian Authority um, and Hamas in Gaza. And on the other hand, the major donor countries, um, something has to give here. So it, this is not just a matter of putting out the begging bowl once again in order to be able to get a, a brief top up to be able to stagger on for the next few months. Something has to change in the business model, in the funding model of, of UNRWA. And UNRWA's management realizes that, and it's taking serious, a serious look at what it is that it can do. It's discussing this issue with UN headquarters also to be able to come up with a longer-term solution so that we're not back in this crisis again in a few months' time. Yes, because you, you, you talked about this almost perennial crisis in a way, uh, but I think I'm right in saying that the cuts have been really, really quite dramatic in recent years. And just looking, for instance, at the United Kingdom, um, the the cut has been more than 50%. I think it's down from something like 42.5 million in 2020 to 20.8 million uh, in 2021. Um, and, I, and of course, I, I I don't know what the situation is now, I don't know if you are able to tell us what has actually happened to the budget in the last couple of years and also how um, the UK's cut has compared to others such as uh, the US, the US or the Scan or Scandinavian member states, the traditional donors. Do you, do you know what's happened to the budget in the past couple of years? Well, historically, the UK was the third largest donor. 
um, both to the UN's regular budget, uh, to the UNRWA regular budget, excuse me, which is funding their normal programs, as well as their different emergency and project budgets. Those project budgets pay for things like building a new school, for example, or a, a new housing development in one of the refugee centers. And these are the kind of things which uh, the Arab countries prefer to put their money into rather than into the ongoing rather more uh, tedious from their point of view point of view of the the regular programs that the that the agency delivers the schooling the health programs social welfare etc so the, the funding has become increasingly unreliable you will remember that the trump administration stopped funding entirely of, of unra Biden to its credit has come back in again and is once again the largest single donor here but most of the um, wealthy gulf countries unfortunately are not contributing to the regular budget which keeps those daily services uh, going uh, as far as the uk is concerned yes indeed uh, the uk's um, cuts have been relatively speaking uh, one of the the largest of, of all the, the the donors this is partly because of the UK having dropped its commitment to making aid 0.7% of GDP, but partly also because of a switch in priorities away to other uh, areas of the world and to dealing with, with the post-COVID conflict uh, problem, post-COVID problems, as well as the Ukraine conflict. So there's, there's a mixture of reasons for the U UK's cuts, and it's certainly a very serious issue, which, um, we, a group of us, would like to be able to take up with the UK government to be able to see if they can not only go back to where they were before, but also take a lead in looking at what the longer term solutions are politically with the uh, other member states in New York. Then that's interesting, um, Andrew, because as, as many viewers will know, um, there, there is going to be a general election in Britain next year. Um, it has to really be an election by the end of the year. Um, we also know, I mean, all the major parties are saying much the same. There's really not much money there for anything. Um, but do you think that uh, it's possible that this could be uh, uh, an issue in a general election? Not specifically UNRWA, but really Britain stepping up uh, to, the, to the plate on supporting Palestinians and a slightly different uh, political direction, if you like, uh, from different political parties. Do you think that might happen and there could be a degree of fluidity, perhaps, and, uh, and a willingness to perhaps listen more carefully to how deep the problems are? I think that politicians from all parties need to look very carefully at the potential implications for the region of an uncontrolled collapse by UNRWA, which is certainly on the cards, as you rightly said in your introduction. I think that if UNRWA were to stop working, this would fuel uh, Islamic radical movements. They would act as a recruiting sergeant for the Islamist groups, the which we jihadi groups that we know are out there and are looking for unemployed young people in order to be able to recruit them to their cause. And many refugees will certainly feel abandoned by the international community and point the finger at the West as being responsible for their, their plight. This is going to create not just a humanitarian disaster, but a, a real threat to security in the region. And I think politicians should be alert to this. It also runs the risk of destabilizing some of the regional countries. Jordan in particular, 
which has more than 2 million registered refugees, is really at risk from a halt to UNRWA's services. And Jordan is in a difficult financial situation anyway, but it has really a lot to gain from being a constructive part of the solution of being able to see that there is a different financial model in future, which doesn't just leave the agency going from one crisis to another. So I think that the coming months uh, really need political thinking on the part of both the donors and the host countries to be able to avert what currently we're sleepwalking into a potential disaster in the coming months. Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, and don't forget, uh, do send in uh, your questions if you've got any points uh, to raise with Andrew. Uh, we're all ears. Uh, Vicky Nicolaitis, uh, she says, uh, hello, uh, this is very disturbing news. In indeed it is. Um, Andrew, um, we have got the build-up, of course, to the UN General Assembly in September. Um, you spent a number of years as director of UNRWA in New York. What do you think may now be going on behind the scenes do you do you think member states are, are alert to what is ha happening and realize the I mean, I mean there's always a multitude of international crises on any secretary general's plate but this one has this particularly sec particular secretary general has a, a a whole a whole train of them how far in the pecking order is the crisis of unra in his tra uh, in tray so so first of all you know what might be going on behind the scenes do you think and and how um, abreast of this is the Secretary-General? The, the Secretary-General and his staff have been alerted to the risks. Um, they're conscious of it. I think that uh, it's not high on the agenda at the moment. It needs to be higher on it. Obviously, there are a number of other major crises, not least the Ukraine war, uh, competing for attention. But this is one that I think is um, not easy to fix but does have a potential solution, and it does require a degree of compromise on everybody's part, on the part of the agency and the program that it does in terms of possible changes to the scale of the programs that are delivered by, by UNRWA, greater burden sharing on the part of the host countries, something that they will not like at all. But essentially, the way forward, I believe, is to have an independent high-level panel that would be composed of distinguished individuals from the region as well as from donor countries, people who have experience in the UN system, to be able to come up with a more sustainable funding model. And this requires trying to find some painful compromises between the two sides, which will allow the agency to be put onto a, a better footing. I think that viewers need to remember that UNRWA is a temporary agency. Its mandate is renewed every three years. It's dependent on voluntary funding that it has to raise every single year. So unlike a state which would uh, be able to borrow in the international money markets, UNRWA is unable to do that for its services. And so it depends on short-term funding for long-term programs that, that it delivers. And the UN regular budget, which pays for international civil servants, you know, is picking up a little bit of the overall UNRWA budget, but not the program side. And I think there needs to be some imaginative thinking going on with a group of countries who will put representatives together to come up over the next year with a longer term solution. If that political bridge is there, then I believe that other countries will agree to bail out the agency on a short term basis to be able to get it through over the next year or so until that independent panel can give its report to the UN General Assembly. 
because at the end who, of the day, Andrew, who could you see convening this? I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you know, some 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 organisation or some member state has to take a lead. Um, is that is this does this fall to a particular member state? Do you think does it fall to the UN? Does I, I, it fall I, to the elders? I, I, the UNRWA is not um, an agency that reports to the Secretary General. It reports to the UN General Assembly. But the UN General Assembly, as you know very well, is not in a position to be able to put this together. So the Secretary General, in my view, needs to take the lead to be able to. Then you need a small group of countries, and I hope that the UK would be among them, who would come together in order to be able to say, this needs collective efforts, and we need to take this seriously this time, not a, take a, a band-aid approach to, to the, um, the problem that UNRWA is facing, because the implications for the region are far too serious. He left short-term solutions. I mean, I mean, you know this as well as anybody else, Andrew. I mean, there's no doubt in, in our minds that this is a very, very real crisis, but, but people who... Um, Maybe a little bit more uh, disparaging, or, uh, or 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 not as engaged. May say, well, look, surely you know you've been UNRWA has been here so many times before. Are there, aren't they crying wolf? I mean, there was a headline last year: uh, UN Palestine Refugee Ag Agency close to collapse after funding cuts. That was in, in in the media last year. Of course, three years ago, UNRWA was not exactly helped by the fact that. Uh, uh, it's um, it's uh, the head Pierre Cranbull had to resign amid uh, a misconduct uh, inquiry and, um, and 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 claims various allegations that were made at the time. So none of that, I don't suppose, has been particularly uh, helpful. But you know, how, how do we? How is it possible to engage those people who say, well, actually, look, the, the organisation itself needs. Further reform, you know, we're, we're, it's it's cried wolf too too often. What 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 would you say to them? Look, as a former insider, I would agree the agency does need reform. Uh, I think that there there needs to be some changes in the thinking about the agency. There is a sense of entitlement on the part of a lot of the staff and the refugees that this is their birthright, if you like, to be able to have the international community by which they mean the West, essentially keeping them going until the refugee issue is settled. Well, we're a long way from any political resolution of the refugee issue. But in the meantime, uh, this UN agency is left carrying the baby, uh, which is clearly a, a rather unfair situation for it to be left in. And what UNRWA has been in in the past has been cash flow crises, being able to bide their, their time through to be able to get through till the next um, installment of funds that come in from its regular donors. But the fact is that it needs to be able to have a longer-term financial horizon to be able to make the commitments that it needs to do for schooling, for salaries that, that it pays, for the purchases of food and medical equipment and so on. So it, the, the model is unsustainable. It, it was designed for a very different set of circumstances in the late 1940s, early 50s. Uh, when people thought that there would be an early solution to the refugee issue. It hasn't happened yet, and we shouldn't preclude a, a political resolution of the refugee question. That's not UNRWA's business. Um, but the fact of the matter is that UNRWA is in this situation, and I believe not through a fault of the, of the current management in, in any sense, 
um, it, it, this is really a structural deep problem that everyone has to to, to assume some responsibility for. Mm. Andrew, we've got, uh, well, Vicky, again, uh, she says, uh, should we encourage individuals to donate to UNRWA? Perhaps you might ask answer that question. Jamal in Leicester uh, has got in touch uh, and says, surely the only ultimate solution to the crisis of Palestinian refugees is to allow them to return to their homes in line with Resolution 194. Until, until then, their plight will continue. Um, and Miriam in Manchester asks, uh, Palestinians in Gaza are living in desperate poverty and misery from the 17-year Israeli blockade and rounds of military bombardment. UNRWA is their lifeline. Shouldn't asking UNRWA to scale back its services right now be an unthinkable suggestion? Well, let's start with the last one, um, because, yes, that's absolutely right. 70% of the population of Gaza depend entirely on UNRWA and the continuing blockade or siege, whatever one wants to call it, is completely unconscionable. And in my view, it also is something which is counterproductive. It's counterproductive for a, from an Israeli perspective, and it's certainly counterproductive from a Palestinian perspective. So the complacency on the part of many international actors in the continuation of this, this blockade, which serves no useful purpose that I can tell, you know, is really a, a, a core matter here. Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, as I know, having lived there, um, are perfectly capable of standing on their own feet. They're very entrepreneurial people. And uh, given the necessary political will, then uh, Gazans ought to be able to stand on their own feet and not be um, the beneficiaries of, of international aid, particularly through, through UNRWA. Um, on the right of return, yes, absolutely, Palestinian refugees have the uh, have the right of return. Nobody can take that away from them. Um, I don't think it's likely that it's going to be exercised in the near future, but that doesn't stop them having the ability to be able to do so. So I'd say that while one maintains the, the political um, flag, if you like, that uh, all refugees, not just Palestinian refugees, have the right to be able to return to where they originally came from, um, in practical terms, it's unlikely to happen in the near future, and most refugees just want to get on with their own lives and to improve the, the quality of, of, of their lives and those of, the, of their children. I, I think we should point to the excellent record that UNRWA has had over the decades in being able to educate and train people who've gone on to become important contributors to the economic well-being of the entire region, particularly in, in the Gulf region, which uh, the UNRWA refugees with the backbone of their economies in the early days of the 60s. People tend to forget this, that the UNRWA and, its and the refugees it cared for made such important contributions to the area. So I, I, I really hope... We've lost your sound there, Andrew, unfortunately. A little bit better, a little bit better. Uh, uh, apologies yes. for that. For that. So what, what I was saying is that I hope people will look at UNRWA in the round. Um, it, it does need some reforms. I certainly think that it is possible that it can make some improvements in the way it delivers it. But UNRWA, at the end of the day, is an extremely cost-efficient service deliverer, much cheaper uh, but good quality services than, than many states would, would have. So 
I think we, we need to look at it from that particular perspective, that it's really a, a rather efficient agency, um, even if it's a, a little stuck in its ways and could do with, with some improvements in the way that it delivers it. And there's no God-given reason why it has to maintain exactly the same services that it does now. Uh, those could be modified in line with what are the... the with what funding is, is made available. I mean, Andrew, we, we are looking at you know, this year at a, a substantial uptick in um, turmoil and violence, uh, attacks on Palestinians and their, their villages uh, and towns. Uh, there, there's, a, there, there's been a big increase in violence and the potential for you know, wider conflict is, um, is, is there and growing, it would seem. Does it always have to take absolute crisis to get the, the global, the international community to wake up? Because you can make the most sensible arguments, as you've just been doing, and saying how cost-effective UNRWA is, how essential it is, what might happen if it's not there. But if the, if the money seizes up and there's nothing in September, is it that and the violence that may break out because of it and then the suffering that... Polit global politicians will not be able to ignore because it'll be on their television screens. Is it always going to take that to make people wake up? I'm afraid that is often the case. I really wish that it were not, but that has been the case in the past, and I believe it may be uh, in the future, but I don't wish this to happen at all. I think we are at a stage now where sensible decisions can be taken that prudently will look at the ways in which the, the funding model for the agency can be amended, can be altered, uh, in order to be able to give it that sustainability. There could be some means, for example, to be able to look at ways in which um, another government could issue bonds on behalf of, of, of UNRWA in, in order to be able to give it the longer term stability that it needs. There, there are imaginative solutions that, that are possible. So it shouldn't just be a case of simply having to be able to start each year again in January, looking at a blank sheet of paper and saying, where am I going to get the money from to be able to, to pay our salaries in, in a few months' time? Uh, I think that is the structural issue which ultimately needs to be addressed. And just and finally, Andrew, because we are running out of time, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that the, 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 the member states that have traditionally been the big supporters of UNRWA and the frankly often disappointing um, support that has come from uh, near neighbours. Of course, you know, countries such as Jordan and Lebanon, who have been hosting Palestinian refugees for such a long time, have contributed massively. But if you look towards Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in particular, the question is, what is it that's going to make them uh, come up uh, with more that uh, UNRWA needs. And also, um, I'm just wondering too, given the recent state visit of President Abbas to China and uh, his meeting with President Xi, whether uh, China could be a country that begins to take more of a lead um, uh, over this kind of issue. Well, let's take the last point first. Uh, China is not going to become a traditional Western-style donor. Um, it might seem a little bit um, anachronistic to you, but China regards itself still as a developing country, and it does not see itself as being as, as having a, a, a financial responsibilities in order to act as a major donor. Um, 
China is starting to give relatively small amounts of money, usually in politically targeted areas, in areas where it has particular interest, but it prefers to put loans and investments into those countries where it wishes to build strategic partnerships. That's not the case for uh, the Palestinian refugees or, or for, for, for UNRWA itself. However, China is, as you have correctly noted, playing more of an important political role, um, even to the extent of, of offering to intervene in the intra-Palestinian factional um, rift um, that there has been. And so I think that China needs to be part of the solution as well. I would welcome very much seeing a Chinese representative on this high-level panel that we're talking about as something that could um, offer a way forward. It would give them a political stake in, in the outcome of it. So the Arab Gulf countries, unfortunately, um, have preferred to put their money into projects rather than regular funding. But I think that there are other ways in which that they can be more um, active supporters. The host countries have indeed borne a very considerable burden, the particular Jordan and Lebanon, Syria also, where prior to the, the, the war, uh, Palestinian refugees were extremely well integrated socially and economically uh, into the fabric of, of, of the country. So I think we should give credit where it's due to, to those host countries and the enormous burden that they have borne over many decades, a, a burden that uh, they, they have borne quite heroically. Um, at the end of the day, as I say, I think that you know this is this can't be the responsibility only of one group of countries from one part of of the world. We have to come up with a, a global solution because there's no immediate short-term solution for the um, refugee status of, of the Palestinians. Um, but in the meantime, we have to be able to find ways in which they can get on with their lives and that they they are not discriminated against. Their children are not discriminated against in terms of health or education or vocational training or ways to be able to find that they can make a, a useful contribution to their own societies. Thank you very much indeed, Unra. And thank, I beg your pardon, Andrew, th thank you very, very much also to everybody who's um, been in touch today, sent in their questions, um, raised points. We, we do hope that uh, not only this immediate crisis can be averted, but uh, that there is, as Andrew's been saying, um, a long-term uh, solution for uh, UNRWA and for the whole mechanism of uh, delivery of these most vital of services to Palestinians. But of course, we must hope too that um, uh, the eventual cause of all of this suffering uh, is ended. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very grateful to you. Um, and we wish everybody, um, obviously, who works for UNRWA, who's involved in UNRWA, all success. Uh, and um, Vicky Nicolaidis, uh, thank you very much for your message. Thank you, too. Uh, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.